Section 16 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the Street Sellers of Sand Two kinds of sand only are sold in the streets, scouring or floor sand, and bird sand for birds. In scouring sand, the trade is inconsiderable to what it was, sawdust having greatly superseded it in the gin palace, the tap-room, and the butcher's shop. Of the supply of sand, a man who was working at the time on Hampstead Heath gave the following account. Quote, I've been employed here for five and thirty years under Sir Thomas Wilson. Times are greatly changed, sir. We used to have from twenty-five to thirty carts a day, hawking sand, and taking six or seven men to fill them every morning, besides large quantities which went to brass founders, and for cleaning dentist cutlery, for stone sawing, lead and silver casting, and such like. This heath, sir, contains about every kind of sand, but Sir Thomas won't allow us to dig it. The greatest number of carts filled now is eight or ten a day, which I fill myself. Sir Thomas has raised the price from three shillings sixpence to four shillings a load of about two and a half tons. Bless you, sir, some years ago one might go into St. Luke's and sell five or six cartloads of house sand a week. Now a man may roar himself hoarse and not sell a load in a fortnight. Sawdust is used in all the public houses and gin palaces. People sprung up who don't use sand at all, and many of the old people are too poor to buy it. The men who get sand here now are old customers who carry it all over the town and round Holloway, Islington and such parts. Twelve year ago I would have taken here six pounds or seven pounds in a morning. Today I have only taken nine shillings. Fine weather is greatly against the sale of house sand. In wet, dirty weather the sale is greater. End quote. One street sand seller gave the following account of his calling. Quote, I have been in the sand business, man and boy, for forty years. I was at it when I was twelve years old, and I am now fifty-two. I used to have two carts hawking sand, but it wouldn't pay, so I have just that one you see here. Hawking sand is a poor job now. I send two men with that ere cart, and pay one of them three shillings fourpence, and the other three shillings a day. Now with beer money, two shillings a week, to the man at the heath, and turnpike gates. I reckon every load of sand to cost me five shillings. Add to that six shillings fourpence for the two men, the wear and tear, and horses keep. And to do a horse justice, you cannot in these cheap times keep em at less than ten shillings a week. In dear seasons it will cost fifteen shillings. And you will find each load of sand stands me in a good sum. So suppose we get a guinea a load. You see we have no great pull. Then there's the licence, eight shillings a year. Many years ago we resisted this and got Mr. Humphreys to defend us before the magistrates at Clerkenwell, but we were cast. Several hawkers were fined ten pounds, and I was brought up before old Sir Richard Burney at Bow Street, and had to find bail that I would not sell another bushel of sand till I took out a licence. Soon after that, Sir Thomas Wilson shut up the heath from us. He said he would not have it cut about any more for that a poor animal could not pick up a crumb without being in danger of breaking its leg. This was just after we took out our licences, 
and as we'd paid dearly for being allowed to sell the sand, some of us, and I was one, we waited upon Sir Thomas, and asked to be allowed to work out our licences, which was granted, and we have gone on ever since. My men work very hard for their money, sir. They are up at three o'clock of the morning, and are knocking about the streets perhaps till five or six o'clock in the evening. End quote. The yellow house sand is also found at Kingsland and at the Kensington gravel pits, but at the latter place street sellers are not supplied. The sand here is very fine and mostly disposed of to plasterers. There is also some of this kind of sand at Wandsworth. In the street selling of house sand, there are now not above 30 men employed, and few of these trade on their own account. Reckoning the horses and carts employed in the trade at the same price as our Camden Town informant sets on his stock, we have 20 horses at £10 each, and 20 carts at £3 each, with three baskets to each at two shillings apiece, making a total of £236 of capital employed in the carrying machinery of the street selling of sand. Allowing three shillings a day for each man, the wages would amount for 30 men to £27 weekly, and the expenses for horses' keep at 10 shillings a head would give for 20 horses £10 weekly, making a total of £38 weekly, or an annual expenditure for man and horse of £2,496. Calculating the sale at a load per day for each horse and cart, at 21 shillings a load, we have £6,573 annually expended in the purchase of house or floor sand. Bird sand, or the fine and dry sand required for the use of cage birds, is now obtained altogether of a market gardener in Hackney. It is sold at eightpence the barrow load, as much being shovelled onto a coster's barrow as it will carry. A good-sized barrow holds three and a half bushels, a smaller size three bushels, and the buyer is also the shoveller. Three-fourths of the quantity conveyed by the street sellers from Hackney is sold to the bird shop keepers at sixpence for three pecks. The remainder is disposed of to such customers as purchase it in the street, or is delivered at private houses, which receive a regular supply. The usual charge to the general public is a halfpenny or a penny, for sand to fill any vessel brought to contain it. A penny a gallon is perhaps an average price in this retail trade. A man in a good way of business disposes of a barrow-load once a week, the others once a fortnight. In wet or windy weather, great care is necessary, and much trouble incurred in supplying this sand to the street sellers, and again in their vending it in the streets. The street vendors are the same men as supply the turf and so on for cage-birds, of whom I have treated. Page 156, Volume 1. There are forty in number, and although they do not all supply sand, a matter beyond the strength of the old and infirm, a few costermongers convey a barrow-load of sand now and then to the bird-sellers, and this addition ensures the weekly supply of forty barrow-loads. Calculating these at the wholesale or bird-dealer's price, two shillings threepence a barrow being an average, we find £234 yearly expended in this sand. What is vended at two shillings threepence costs but eightpence at the wholesale price, but the profit is hardly earned considering the labour of wheeling a heavy barrow of sand for miles 
and the trouble of keeping overnight what is unsold during the day. Of the street sellers of shells. The street trade in shells presents the characteristics I have before had to notice as regards the trade in what are not necessaries, or an approach to necessaries, in contradistinction of what men must have to eat or wear. Shells, such as the green snail, ear shell, and others of that class, though extensively used for inlaying in a variety of ornamental works, are comparatively of little value, for no matter how useful, if shells are only well known, they are considered of but little importance, while those which are rarely seen, no matter how insignificant in appearance, command extraordinary prices. As an instance, I may mention that on the 23rd of June, there was purchased by Mr. Sowerby, shell dealer, at a public sale in King Street, Covent Garden, a small shell not two inches long, broken and damaged, and withal what is called a dead cell, for the sum of thirty guineas. It was described as the Conus Glory Mary, and had it only been perfect, would have fetched a hundred guineas. Shells such as conches, cowries, green snails, and ear shells, the latter being so called from their resemblance to the human ear, are imported in large quantities as parts of cargoes and are sold to the large dealers by weight. Con shells are sold at eight shillings per hundredweight, cowries and clams from ten shillings to twelve shillings per hundredweight. The green snail, used for inlaying, fetches from one pound to one pound ten shillings per hundredweight, and the ear shell, on account of its superior quality and richer variety of colours, as much as three pounds and five pounds per hundredweight. The conches are found only among the West India Islands and are used principally for garden ornaments and grotto work. The others come principally from the Indian Ocean and the China Seas and are used as well for chimney ornaments as for inlaying, for the tops of work tables and other ornamental furniture. The shells which are considered of the most value are almost invariably small and of an endless variety of shape. They are called cabinet shells and are brought from all parts of the world, land as well as sea, lakes, rivers and oceans furnishing specimens to the collection. The Australian forests are continually ransacked to bring to light new varieties. I have been informed that there is not a river in England but contains valuable shells, that even in the Thames there are shells worth from ten shillings to one pound each. I have been shown a shell of the snail kind found in the woods of New Holland, and purchased by a dealer for two pounds, and on which he confidently reckoned to make a considerable profit. Although cabinet shells are collected from all parts, yet by far the greater number come from the Indian Ocean. They are generally collected by the natives, who sell them to captains and mates of vessels trading to those parts, and very often to sailors, all of whom frequently speculate to a considerable extent in these things, and have no difficulty in disposing of them as soon as they arrive in this country, for there is not a shell dealer in London who has not a regular staff of persons stationed at Gravesend to board the homeward-bound ships at the Nore, and sometimes as far as the Downs, for the purpose of purchasing shells. It usually happens that when three or four of these persons meet on board the same ship, an animated competition takes place, so that the shells on board are generally bought up long before the ship arrives at London. Many persons from this country go out to various parts of the world for the sole purpose of procuring shells, 
and they may be found from the western coast of Africa to the shores of New South Wales, along the Persian Gulf, in Ceylon, the Malaccas, China, and the islands of the Pacific, where they employ the natives in dredging the bed of the ocean, and are by this means continually adding to the almost innumerable varieties which are already known. To show the extraordinary request in which shells are held in almost every place, while I was in the shop of Mr. J. C. Jamrach, naturalist and agent to the Zoological Society at Amsterdam, one of the largest dealers in London, and to whom I am indebted for much valuable information on this subject, a person, a native of High Germany, was present. He had arrived in London the day before, and had purchased on that day a collection of shells of a low quality, for which he paid Mr. Jamrach £36. To this he added a few birds. Placing his purchase in a box furnished with a leather strap, he slung it over his shoulder, shook hands with Mr. Jamrach, and departed. Mr. Jamrach informed me that the next morning he was to start by steam for Rotterdam, then continue his journey up the Rhine to a certain point from whence he was to travel on foot from one place to another till he could dispose of his commodities, after which he would return to London as the great mart for a fresh supply. He was only a very poor man, but there are a great many others far better off, continually coming backwards and forwards, who are able to purchase a larger stock of shells and birds, and who, in the course of their peregrinations, wander through the greater part of Germany, extending their excursions sometimes through Austria, the Tyrol, and the north of Italy. A visit to the premises of Mr. Jamrach, of Ratcliffe Highway, or Mr. Samuel, Upper East Smithfield, would well repay the curious observer. The front portion of Mr. Jamrach's house is taken up with a wonderful variety of strange birds that keep up an everlasting screaming. In another portion of the house are collected confusedly together heaps of nondescript articles which might appear to the uninitiated worth little or nothing, but on which the possessor places great value. In a yard behind the house, immured in iron cages, are some of the larger species of birds and some beautiful varieties of foreign animals, while in large presses ranged round the other rooms and furnished with numerous drawers are placed his real valuables, the cabinet shells. The establishment of Mr. Samuel is equally curious. In London, the dealers in shells, keeping shops for the sale of them, amount to no more than ten. They are all doing a large business, and are men of good capital, which may be proved by the following quotation from the day-books of one of the class for the present year, namely, Shells sold in February, £275. Shells sold in March, £471. Shells sold in April, £1,389. Shells sold in May, £475. Total, £2,610. Profit on same, February, £75.12. Profit in March, £140. Profit in April, £323. Profit in May, £127. Total, £665.12. shillings. Besides these, there are about 20 private dealers who do not keep shops, but who nevertheless do a considerable business in this line among persons at the west end of London. All shell dealers add to that occupation the sale of foreign birds and curiosities. 
There is yet another class of persons who seem to be engaged in the sale of shells, but it is only seeming. They are dressed as sailors and appear at all times to have just come ashore after a long voyage, as a man usually follows them with that sort of canvas bag in use among sailors, in which they stow away their clothes. The men themselves go on before carrying a parrot or some rare bird in one hand and in the other a large shell. These men are the duffers, of whom I have spoken in my account of the sale of foreign birds. They make shells a more frequent medium for the introduction of their real avocation, as a shell is a far less troublesome thing either to hawk or keep by them than a parrot. I now give a description of these men as general duffers, and from good authority. Quote, they are known by the name of duffers, and have an exceedingly cunning mode of transacting their business. They are all united in some secret bond. They have persons also bound to them who are skilled in making shawls in imitation of those imported from China, and who, according to the terms of their agreement, must not work for any other persons. The duffers, from time to time, furnish these persons with designs for shawls, such as cannot be got in this country, which, when completed, they, the duffers, conceal about their persons and start forward on their travels. They contrive to gain admission to respectable houses by means of shells and sometimes of birds, which they purchase from the regular dealers, but always those of a low quality, after which they contrive to introduce the shawls, their real business, for which they sometimes have realised prices varying from £5 to £20. In many instances, the cheat is soon discovered, when the duffers immediately decamp to make place for fresh batch, who have been long enough out of London to make their faces unknown to their former victims. These remain till they also find danger threaten them, when they again start away, and others immediately take their place. While away from London, they travel through all parts of the country, driving a good trade among the country gentlemen's houses, and sometimes visiting the seaports such as Liverpool, Portsmouth and Plymouth. End quote. An instance of the skill with which the duffers sometimes do business is the following. One of these persons, some time ago, came into the shop of a shell dealer, having with him a beautiful specimen of a three-coloured cockatoo, for which he asked ten pounds. The shell dealer declined the purchase at that price, saying that he sold these birds at four pounds apiece, but offered to give three pounds ten shillings for it, which was at once accepted. While pocketing the money, the man remarked that he had paid ten guineas for that bird. The shell dealer, surprised that so good a judge should be induced to give so much more than the value of the bird, was desirous of hearing further. When the duffer made this statement, I went the other day to a gentleman's house, he was an old officer, where I saw this bird, and in order to get introduced, I offered to purchase it. The gentleman said he knew it was a valuable bird, and couldn't think of taking less than ten guineas. I then offered to barter for it, and produced a shawl, for which I asked twenty-five guineas, but offered to take fifteen guineas and the bird. This was at length agreed to, and now, having sold it for three pounds ten shillings, it makes nineteen pounds five shillings I got for the shawl, and not a bad day's work either. Of shells there are about a million of the commoner sorts, bought by the London street sellers, at three shillings the gross. They are retailed at a penny apiece, or twelve shillings the gross, when sold separately. 
a large proportion, as is the case with many articles of taste or curiosity, rather than of usefulness, being sold by the London street folk on country rounds. Some of these rounds stretch halfway to Bristol or to Liverpool. Of the River Beer Sellers or Pearl Men There is yet another class of itinerant dealers who, if not traders in the streets, are traders in what was once termed the Silent Highway. The River Beer Sellers or Pearl Men, as they are more commonly called, these should strictly have been included among the sellers of eatables and drinkables. They have, however, been kept distinct, being a peculiar class, and having little in common with the other outdoor sellers. I will begin my account of the river sellers by enumerating the numerous classes of labourers, amounting to many thousands, who get their living by plying their respective avocations on the river, and who constitute the customers of these men. There are first the sailors on board the corn, coal and timber ships, then the lumpers, or those engaged in discharging the timber ships, the stevedores, or those engaged in stowing craft, and the riggers, or those engaged in rigging them, ballast heavers, ballast getters, corn porters, coal whippers, watermen and lightermen, and coal porters, who, although engaged in carrying sacks of coal from the barges or ships at the river's side to the shore, where there are public houses, nevertheless, when hard-worked and pressed for time, frequently avail themselves of the presence of the pearl-men to quench their thirst, and to navel-stimulate them to further exertion. It would be a remarkable circumstance if the fact of so many persons continually employed in severe labour and who, of course, are at times in want of refreshment, had not called into existence a class to supply that which was evidently required. Under one form or the other, therefore, river dealers boast of an antiquity as old as the naval commerce of the country. The prototype of the river beer seller of the present day is the bum-boatman. Bum-boats, or rather, baum-boats, that is to say, the boats of the harbour from the German baum, a haven or bar, are known in every port where ships are obliged to anchor at a distance from the shore. They are stored with a large assortment of articles, such as are likely to be required by people after a long voyage. Previously to the formation of the various docks on the Thames, they were very numerous on the river and drove a good trade with the homeward-bound shipping. But since the docks came into requisition, and steam-tugs brought the ships from the mouth of the river to the dock entrance, their business died away, and they gradually disappeared, so that a bum-boat on the Thames at the present day would be a sort of curiosity, a relic of times past. In former times it was not in the power of any person who chose to follow the calling of a bum-boatman on the Thames. The Trinity Company had the power of granting licences for this purpose. Whether they were restrained by some special clause in their charter or not, from giving licences indiscriminately, it is difficult to say, but it is certain that none got a licence but a sailor, one who had served his country, and it was quite common in those days to see an old fellow with a pair of wooden legs, perhaps blind of an eye, or wanting an arm, and with a face rugged as a rock, plying about among the shipping, accompanied by a boy whose duty it was to carry the articles to the purchasers on shipboard, 
and help in the management of the boat. In the first or second year of the reign of Her Present Majesty, however, when the original bumboatmen had long degenerated into the mere beer-sellers, and any one who wished traded in this line on the river, the Trinity Company having for many years paid no attention to the matter, an inquiry took place, which resulted in a regulation that all the beer-sellers, or pearl-men, should thenceforward be regularly licensed for the river sale of beer and spirits from the Waterman's Hall, which regulation is in force to the present time. It appears to have been the practice at some time or other in this country to infuse wormwood into beer or ale, previous to drinking it, either to make it sufficiently bitter, or for some medicinal purpose. This mixture was called pearl, why I know not, but Bailey, the philologist of the 17th century, so designates it. The drink originally sold on the river was pearl, or this mixture, whence the title Pearl Man. Now, however, the wormwood is unknown, and what is sold under the name of pearl is beer warmed nearly to boiling heat and flavoured with gin, sugar and ginger. The river sellers, however, still retain the name of pearl men, though there is not one of them with whom I have conversed that has the remotest idea of the meaning of it. To set up as a pearl man, some acquaintance with the river and a certain degree of skill in the management of a boat are absolutely necessary, as, from the frequently crowded state of the pool and the rapidity with which the steamers pass and repass, twisting and wriggling their way through craft of every description, the unskilful adventurer would run in continual danger of having his boat crushed like a nutshell. The pearlmen, however, through long practice, are scarcely inferior to the watermen themselves in the management of their boats, and they may be seen at all times easily working their way through every obstruction, now shooting athwart the bows of a Dutch galliot or sailing barge, then dropping astern to allow a steamboat to pass, till they at length reach the less troubled waters between the tiers of shipping. The first thing required to become a pearl man is to procure a license from the waterman's hall, which costs three shillings sixpence per annum. The next requisite is the possession of a boat. The boats used are all in the form of skiffs, rather short, but of a good breadth, and therefore less liable to capsize through the swell of the steamers, or through any other cause. Thus equipped, he then goes to some of the small breweries, where he gets two pins, or small casks of beer, each containing eighteen pots. After this, he furnishes himself with a quart or two of gin from some publican, which he carries in a tin vessel with a long neck, like a bottle, an iron or tin vessel to hold the fire, with holes drilled all round to admit the air and keep the fuel burning, and a huge bell, by no means the least important portion of his fit-out. Placing his two pins of beer on a frame in the stern of the boat, the spiles loosened and the brass cocks fitted in, and with his tin gin-bottle close to his hand beneath the seat, two or three measures of various sizes, a black tin-pot for heating the beer, and his fire-pan secured on the bottom of the boat, and sending up a black smoke, he takes his seat early in the morning and pulls away from the shore, resting now and then on his oars, to rig the heavy bell that announces his approach. Those on board the vessels requiring refreshment, when they hear the bell, hail, Pearl Ahoy! In an instant the oars are resumed, 
and the Pearl Man is quickly alongside the ship. The bell of the Pearl Man not unfrequently performs another very important office. During the winter, when dense fogs settle down on the river, even the regular watermen sometimes lose themselves and flounder about bewildered, perhaps for hours. The direction once lost, their shouting is unheeded or unheard. The Pearlman's bell, however, reaches the ear through the surrounding gloom and indicates his position. When near enough to hear the hail of his customers, he makes his way unerringly to the spot by now and then sounding his bell. This is immediately answered by another shout, so that in a short time the glare of his fire may be distinguished as he emerges from the darkness and glides noiselessly alongside the ship where he is wanted. The amount of capital necessary to start in the Pearl Line may be as follows. I have said that the boats are all of the skiff kind, generally old ones, which they patch up and repair at but little cost. They purchase these boats at from £3 to £6 each. If we take the average of these two sums, the items will be Boat, £4.10 shillings. Pewter measures, 5 shillings. Warming pot, 1 shilling sixpence. Fire stove, 5 shillings. Gallon can, 2 shillings sixpence. Two pins of beer, 8 shillings. Quart of gin, 2 shillings sixpence. Sugar and ginger, 1 shilling. License, 3 shillings sixpence. Total, £5.19 shillings. Thus, it requires at the very least a capital of £6 to set up as a pearl man. Since the Waterman's Hall has had the granting of licences, there have been upwards of 140 issued. But out of the possessors of these, many are dead, some have left for other business, and others are too old and feeble to follow the occupation any longer, so that out of the whole number there remain only 35 pearl men on the river, and these are thus divided. Twenty-three ply their trade in what is called the pool, that is, from Execution Dock to Ratcliffe Cross, among the coal-laden ships, and do a tolerable business among the sailors and the hard-working and thirsty coal-whippers. Eight pearlmen follow their calling from Execution Dock to London Bridge, and sell their commodity among the ships loaded with corn, potatoes, and so on and four are known to frequent the various reaches below Limehouse Hole, where the colliers are obliged to lie at times in sections, waiting till they are sold on the coal exchange, and some even go down the river as far as the ballast lighters of the Trinity Company, for the purpose of supplying the ballast getters. The pearl men cannot sell much to the unfortunate ballast heavers, for they are suffering under all the horrors of an abominable truck system, and are compelled to take from the publicans about Wapping and Shadwell, who are their employers, large quantities of filthy stuff, compounded especially for their use, for which they are charged exorbitant prices, being thus, and in a variety of other ways, mercilessly robbed of their earnings, so that they and their families are left in a state of almost utter destitution. One of the pearl men, whose boat is number 44, has hoops like those used by gypsies for pitching their tents. These he fastens to each side of the boat, over which he draws a tarred canvas covering, waterproof, and beneath this he sleeps the greater part of the year, 
seldom going ashore except for the purpose of getting a fresh supply of liquors for trade or food for himself. He generally casts anchor in some unfrequented nook down the river, where he enjoys all the quiet of a Thames hermit after the labour of the day. To obtain the necessary heat during the winter, he fits a funnel to his fire-stove to carry away the smoke, and thus warmed he sleeps away in defiance of the severest weather. It appears from the facts above given that £210 is the gross amount of capital employed in this business. On an average, all the year round, each pearlman sells two pins of beer weekly, independent of gin. But little gin is thus sold in the summer, but in the winter a considerable quantity of it is used in making the pearl. The men purchase the beer at four shillings per pin, and sell it at fourpence per pot, which leaves them a profit of four shillings on the two pins, and allowing them sixpence per day profit on the gin, it gives one pound seven shillings per week profit to each, or a total to all hands of forty-seven pounds five shillings per week and a gross total of £2,457 profit made on the sale of 98,280 gallons of beer, besides gin sold on the Thames in the course of the year. From this amount must be deducted £318.10, shillings, which is paid to boys at the rate of 3 shillings sixpence per week, it being necessary for each pearlman to employ a lad to take care of the boat while he is on board the ships, serving his customers, or traversing the tiers. This deduction being made leaves £61 two shillings per annum to each pearlman as the profit of his year's trading. The present race of pearlmen, unlike the weather-beaten tars, who in former times alone were licensed, are generally young men who have been in the habit of following some river employment, and who, either from some accident having befallen them in the course of their work, or from their preferring the easier task of sitting in their boat and rowing leisurely about to continuous labour, have started in the line and ultimately superseded the old river dealers. This is easily explained. No man labouring on the river would purchase from a stranger when he knew that his own fellow workman was afloat, and was prepared to serve him with as good an article. Besides, he might not have money, and a stranger could not be expected to give trust but his old acquaintance would make little scruple in doing so. In this way, the customers of the pearlmen are secured, and many of these people do so much more than the average amount of business above stated, that it is no unusual thing to see some of them, after four or five years on the river, take a public house, spring up into the rank of licensed victuallers, and finally become men of substance. I conversed with one who had been a coal-whipper, he stated that he had met with an accident while at work, which prevented him from following coal-whipping any longer. He had fallen from the ship's side into a barge, and was for a long time in the hospital. When he came out, he found he could not work, and had no other prospect before him but the union. "'I thought I'd be by this time toes up in Stepney churchyard,' he said, and grinning at the lid of an old coffin. In this extremity, a neighbour, a waterman, who had long known him, advised him to take to the pearl business, and gave him not only the advice, but sufficient money to enable him to put it in practice. The man accordingly got a boat, and was soon afloat among his old workmates. 
In this line he now makes out a living for himself and his family, and reckons himself able to clear, one week with the other, from eighteen shillings to twenty shillings. "'I should do much better,' he said, "'if people would only pay what they owe, but there are some who never think of paying anything.' He has between ten pounds and twenty pounds due to him, and never expects to get a farthing of it. The following is the form of licence issued by the Waterman's Company. Incorporated 1827, Bumboat. Height 5 feet 8 inches, 30 years of age, dark hair, sallow complexion, 2nd and 3rd Victoria, cap 47, section 25. I hereby certify that blank of blank in the parish of blank in the county of Middlesex, is this day registered in a book of the company of the Master, Wardens and Commonalty of Watermen and Lightermen of the River Thames, kept for that purpose, to use, work or navigate a boat called a skiff, named blank, number blank, for the purpose of selling, disposing of, or exposing for sale to and amongst the seamen, or other persons employed in and about any of the ships or vessels upon the said river, any liquors, slops, or other articles whatsoever, between London Bridge and Limehouse Hole, but the said boat is not to be used on the said river for any other purpose than the aforesaid. Waterman's Hall, James Banyan, Clark. Beside the regular pearlmen, or as they may be called, bumboatmen, there are two or three others who, perhaps unable to purchase a boat and take out the licence, have nevertheless for a number of years contrived to carry on a traffic in spirits among the ships in the Thames. Their practice is to carry a flat tin bottle concealed about their person, with which they go on board the first ship in a tier, where they are all well known by those who may be there employed. If the seamen wish for any spirit, the river vendor immediately supplies it, entering the name of the customer served, as none of the vendors ever receive at the time of sale any money for what they dispose of. They keep an account till their customers receive their wages, when they always contrive to be present, and in general succeed in getting what is owed to them. What their profits are, it is impossible to tell. Perhaps they may equal those of the regular pearlman, for they go on board of almost every ship in the course of the day. When their tin bottle is empty, they go on shore to replenish it, doing so time after time if necessary. It is remarkable that although these people are perfectly well known to every pearlman on the river who have seen them day by day for many years going on board the various ships, and are thoroughly cognizant of the purpose of their visits, there has never been any information laid against them, nor have they been in any way interrupted in their business. There is one of these river spirit sellers who has pursued the avocation for the greater part of his life, but he is a native of the south of Ireland now very old, and a little shrivelled up man. He may still be seen every day going from ship to ship by scrambling over the quarters where they are lashed together in tears, a feat sometimes attended with danger to the young and strong. Yet he works his way with the agility of a man of twenty, gets on board the ship he wants, and when there, were he not so well known, he might be thought to be some official sent to take an inventory of the contents of the ship, for he has at all times an ink-bottle hanging from one of his coat-buttons, a pen stuck over his ear, spectacles on his nose, a book in his hand, 
and really has all the appearance of a man determined on doing business of some sort or other. He possesses a sort of ubiquity, for go where you will through any part of the pool, you are sure to meet him. He seems to be expected everywhere. No one appears to be surprised at his presence. Captains and mates pass him by unnoticed and unquestioned. As suddenly as he comes does he disappear, to start up in some other place. His visits are so regular that it would scarcely look like being on board ship if Old D, the Whiskey Man, as he is called, did not make his appearance some time during the day, for he seems to be in some strange way identified with the river and with every ship that frequents it. End of section 16